everybody, welcome back to Hope Nevada. We are glad to be back with you this week, and we have a, another guest joining us this morning. We're really excited about the conversation today, and I uh, want to thank you again for, for joining and bringing hope to Northern Nevada. And so I'm going to turn it over to Whitney to introduce our guest this morning. We are here this morning with Jessica Cisneros. She is the Executive Director of Safe Embrace. Safe Embrace is a nonprofit committed to ending the cycle of domestic and sexual violence in our community. They offer a wide variety of prevention and intervention services that are survivor-centered and trauma-informed. Jessica actually picked this interview date because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so we're really excited to have her today. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Jessica, and let you just introduce yourself and Safe Embrace. All right. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, my name is Jessica Cisneros. Like she said, I'm the executive director of Safe Embrace. Um, I was born and raised here in the Reno Sparks area. So I'm really excited to lead an agency that provides services directly to our community. Um, I've been with Safe Embrace for almost two years. Um, I started off as their program director and then foolishly, like I was saying, uh, became the executive director in June, which I, you know, I think at this point it was a good idea. At first I was a little hesitant, but um, so Safe Embrace um, is really close to my heart. We offer a large array of services, like uh, Whitney was saying, uh, for survivors of both domestic and sexual violence. And I think that's one of the biggest things for us is that we are a dual focused shelter. So anybody that self-certifies as a survivor of whether it's domestic violence, um, sexual violence, trafficking, and that can be labor or sex trafficking, we can offer services for for free and all you have to do is self-certify. So we'd have no other requirements with the exception of self-certification. Um, we are really lucky to have some really robust outreach and prevention education programs. Uh, we do a lot of work with the Washoe County School District and we're actually getting ready to embark on some more um, zero tolerance in hospitality and adult entertainment industry. So we, we kind of get the gamut on that and then um, we have officially completed our safe house. So we are now the largest safe house in Washoe County. We have 32 beds. Um, we are fully ADA accessible and we can house male survivors. So I think we're on the forefront of doing things that are extremely innovative and I'm really proud to lead an agency of this caliber. Wow. And just, I had not thought about this until you just gave that description of being kind of on the, the forefront of the sexual entertainment industry, being in a, in a place like Reno, which we've talked about on the podcast, there's wonderful things about this area. There are some not as great things about this area that we're known for, such as sexual entertainment industry. Yeah. Is, does that, is there a tie between sexual entertainment industry and domestic violence? Like, it, is that something that's a unique doorway for y'all because you're in Reno that might look different if you were doing this work in another city? Um, I haven't seen any direct correlations, but really our goal is to get out and to inform staff within these establishments, um, that there is a zero tolerance policy, that there is no retaliation if they were to report sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, you know, there are some pretty decent programs in the Clark County area that have done some really good work with some of their nightlife. And so that's really what we're trying to sort of trying to encompass a large area, um, including, you know, your adult entertainment venues. Um, we've also had conversations about, you know, we live surrounded by a lot of counties where, um, you know, there are brothels and prostitution is legal. And really our goal is to ensure that um, any person working in any of those establishments is safe. And that's really our goal and that they can see the signs and the red flags and understand that they have a way to report and they feel safe reporting. Because what we see and what we've talked to some survivors is that they do not feel 
safe reporting because sometimes it's their manager or sometimes it's, you know, various other people or employees or um, even patients that are frequenting some of these establishments. So giving them that opportunity. Right. And making safety the priority. There. Yes. That's and that is always our goal. Yes. Both physical and emotional safety. Great. Jessica, I thought something you mentioned, you, you talked about that you guys actually have space for male survivors as well. So I think that's one of those things. One of the things we talk a lot about here is, and we'll get into this in a little while, is um, kind of those unnoticed demographics, mm-hmm. right? Like you have these a perception of an issue, and then you have the issue itself, right? Yes, yes. Um, And usually there's a lot of distance between yeah. those two, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But um, how did you guys... So, so I guess, is there really... Do you guys, Obviously, you see a need because you have spaces for males in there. Mm-hmm. Um can you kind of describe what that looks like? Because I think that's really an issue that people don't understand at all, right? Yeah. Like when we hear domestic abuse, we automatically think male on female violence mm-hmm. for the most part. And and that is the large preponderance of it. Absolutely. Certainly. Yeah. Um, but that's not the only type of domestic or sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And so um, can, can you talk maybe just a little bit about that? Like what is, what would be a qualifier for something like in that situation maybe? So it, it, I mean, it is kind of unique, you know, we had historically, we were getting probably one call every six months from a male survivor. Um, we put our first male survivor in our safe house in October of 2018. Um, and we have had three males since then. Um, you know, and when a lot of times people will ask me, well, how do your female survivors feel about having a male in the house? And my response is, you know, because we talk to them about that and the, the ladies will say, this is a human issue and we understand that it can happen to a male as opposed to a female. Um, you know, we are very inclusive in terms of, we have had, um, transgender folks in our shelter, you know, really we're trying to create a space that feels safe, both emotionally and physically for all survivors, whether they be male, female, transgender, um, however they identify, we want them to have a safe space. Um, after we put our first male in shelter, we, we get about, I would say anywhere from, five to eight calls a month from male survivors. And what we've started to see um, as we sort of do some outreach in, um, you know, our Latin communities, Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen some males step forward that are, you know, they're not necessarily being physically abused, but there's a lot of psychological and, you know, they're keep their significant others keeping their documents. So we we see that and we're starting to get a large increase in um, immigrant males, which is an interesting population that we weren't, you know, so sure of it first, um, which has sort of given us the opportunity. I have two bilingual advocates um, that spread their time th- with Washoe Legal Services, the Protection Order Help Center, which mm-hmm. is located at the Second Judicial District Court, and my office, because that influx of survivors that are, in essence, undocumented, we start to sure. see a lot of them, and both male and female. Well, I think it's such a, a great point that we've seen as we've talking to just various organizations, agencies here on the podcast, is this idea that. When people go into forming an organization or agency or trying to address an issue, you you understand the issue in this one scope, and then you get into it, and all of a sudden, it opens up in a scope that you had no idea Correct. existed, and you've, you're dealing with details that you never anticipated, right? Um, and and I think that's one of the things that you know is really interesting to find out is that in northern Nevada, we we really deal with some very interesting dynamics that come together in this place. We do. Right? Yeah. Um, because of the sex industry, because yep. of hospitality and the preponderance of mm-hmm. the number of hospitality workers here in town. And then, you know, kind of the, the, the growth of this place the last four or five years, an influx of money that kind of creates 
challenges, um, uh, yeah, as yeah. well as opportunities, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And so, um, how do you guys? And one of the the other things we found is that even though agencies and organizations have a very specific focus. Mm-hmm. They find themselves having to work alongside other agencies. I know, as you were talking today, I was thinking we had um, Awaken yep. um, in a couple of weeks ago. And we talked to those guys. And I would imagine there's a huge amount of overlap there is. Um, between them and you. So how do you guys partner with other agencies, maybe, or other organizations um, here in Washoe Valley? What are, what, are some, um, what are some ways that maybe that happens for you guys? It happens pretty frequently. You know, I think that... All of the agencies that we've been able to collaborate with understand that it really does take a village. Sure. Um, you know, in like our services, you know, potentially could be direct feeders into other agencies. Um, you know, you, you talk about Awaken and um, their program director, Kasia, actually was one of the um, staff that helped us develop a tool. So when we have trafficking survivors who are calling our hotline, there are certain questions that you can ask because if you start asking some of those nitty gritty questions, they shut down. And so really, you know, having the assistance of awaken help us develop a question, you know, I don't want to say it's a questionnaire, but it's sort of a screening tool because the way that our shelter works is not first come first serve. Um, We use the Jacqueline Campbell lethality assessment for our domestic Mm -hmm. violence survivors because it's really about risk. Um, And so we wanted to create those both for our sexual assault survivors as well as our trafficking. And so, you know, we work really closely with the Sparks Police Department, Victim Services, RPD, Victim Services, Washoe County, um, Sheriff's Office, uh, Victim Services. We work alongside uh, Washoe County Human Services because a lot of our a lot of our moms coming into shelter um, have had an open CPS case, currently have a CPS case or trying to reunify with their children. And so, you know, we have really found that. You know, we know what we do well, and a lot of that is, you know, we have an emergency shelter. So if, you know, Melissa were to call me and say, I have a survivor, do you have space? What does this look like? We could bring them in for an advocacy and determine, you know, is this the best fit for them? Um, You know, and so really just having those referral sources and being able to collaborate with multiple community agencies so that we can wrap these clients in services. Mm -hmm. I might be able to give them emergency shelter. They might be getting therapeutic services from somewhere that that's their wheelhouse, you know, we have, I have a sexual violence advocate on staff that specifically works with our survivors of sexual assault, but she's just their advocate or their case manager. And it's, if you have a case manager at Awaken and a therapist, we now have that village kind of coming together and wrapping that, wrapping that client in services. And, you know, we've done a lot of, I mean, in terms of programming, our, we have looked at, um, we all of our programs are housing first. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. And yep. so there are no barriers to opting into housing. Okay. And so the goal is we get you into housing and then we start to address everything else. Yep. So you don't have to be medication compliant. You can be an active user. There are no barriers. Sure. Um, within our shelter, we have um, based our model off of a rule reduction because what we were finding was, why do we have rules? The rules were put in place. If there's a curfew, who does that benefit? The clients or the staff? Sure. And we were like, it's for our staff because they know, oh, if curfew is 8 o'clock, everybody needs to be home so I can leave. But if I'm an abuser and I was telling my, you know, my person, like, you have to be home at 9 o'clock, we're just perpetuating the cycle. So we have eliminated Mm -hmm. all of the rules in our safe house um, with the exception of obviously there's always safety concerns. You know, if your abuser shows up on property and I can't keep you safe or, Mm -hmm. you know, there are certain things that you're doing, you're being abusive with other staff because it's a place of healing and we want to create that environment. Mm -hmm. So, um 
yeah, I think, you know, one of the best things that I love about Nevada, again, born and raised here, is that the community always comes together. You know, we, a lot of times when we have really large events, last weekend we had uh, street vibrations. Mm-hmm. Um, RPD called us and said, I have a survivor that needs um, a hotel for the night. You guys use different hotels. All of our hotels are booked. What can you do? We were able to put the survivor up. And so really it's just a matter of like, okay, who has the resource this time to be able to keep this person safe? Which is such an encouraging thing because one of our hopes for the podcast is to really just, you know, we use a tagline sometimes that you can do one of two things, right? You can either curse the darkness or you can light a candle, Mm -hmm. right? And it's so easy to just talk about all the issues. Um, But we also want people to know that there are people and agencies addressing issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you said, none of them do it alone, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So all of us together um, are the strength of Northern Nevada, Yeah. right? Um, and so it's, you know, it's been incredibly encouraging for us on the podcast. I think for me, especially just to hear the amount of cooperation and collaboration that, um, that happens, um, that really shines hope in places like that. So, um, so yeah, thank you guys for what you're doing. It's it's pretty incredible. Just one of the things I love in your description that I was reading of Safe Embrace before is when it talks about not only intervention services, but prevention services. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what prevention of sexual violence or, or domestic violence looks like? Yeah, so um, we sort of run the gamut on prevention ed. We initially started a program two years ago called Coaching Boys Into Men. Um, and the staff that runs that is John Malcolm. Um, and we sort of had to find something after that because he was able to actually go into all of the schools um, facilitate a curriculum for coaches to do with their athletes. And that was the goal because a lot of times some of these athletes, especially in some of these Title I schools, they don't necessarily have a male mentor. Um, and so what it was is this playbook and things to talk about, like identifying red flags, what to do in certain situations. And so once we did that in the first year and he targeted all the schools, we're like, okay, now we know that there are a lot of kids that are not in athletics. And so how do we bridge that out a little bit? And so um, we do a lot of um, coordination with um the Department of Public Health when we're talking about consent. And so John and Tess will go into schools and they'll talk about, you know, consent. What does it look like? Um, and just having those conversations with our youth, because really the goal is that we're not perpetuating that cycle because we see a lot of energy, like energy, I can't even say the word, um, generational, there it goes. Um, you know, we see it and it's a cycle because they see that it's normal and then they feel like it's normal as adults to do that. And so we were really trying to get in, um, sometimes as young as sixth grade to have those conversations. And there are also um, recently some components in the SHARE program that will um, allow for us to come in and talk about some of those things. So uh, we do groups at the Boys and Girls Club. We do groups at Casa de Vida. We do groups at Eddie House, um, which I've heard is one of their favorite groups. And that is really because we see a lot. We see a lot of the kids coming through Eddie House that are coming to us for services. They're on the streets. They're participating in survival sex because they need to be you know, they need to be out. So, you know, we really try to target, we do some groups at WinREC, um, China Springs. So really our at-risk youth, that's kind of where we're trying to target. And we also do adult groups. So we have adult um, support groups. We actually have two here on Tuesday nights, which is great um, because there's childcare and that's a large barrier for sometimes people to come to support mm-hmm. groups. So we have a domestic violence and a sexual violence group here um, at Sparks Christian Fellowship Tuesdays from seven to eight, which I've heard are really great and our our survivors love them um and then we go into places like ridge house and bristlecone and we talk about it step two um so we do a lot of groups with our community partners just to really sort of get them you know to to understand the signs you know Mm -hmm. because sometimes what we see is it kind of goes hand in hand there's some substance use 
you know, and then there's some domestic violence or things of that nature. So we're really trying to, you know, target all of the, you know, the other community partners to ensure that we can kind of wrap the community in services so people know where to access services when needed. Wonderful. And I, I had mentioned to you before we kind of got started that my brother-in-law is an advocate, is, is a pastor and advocate for uh, survivors of domestic violence. And I know since he has brought that issue kind of into our family and brought awareness of it, there were so many things I was naive about, so many misconceptions mm-hmm. I had, so many things I still need to learn and grow in. I would love if you would address maybe some of the misconceptions that the population in general has towards domestic violence or for survivors or men or women that would find themselves in this situation. Could you kind of hit some of those misconceptions and maybe in that talk about where your heart has changed since, since working for this cause. Sure. You know, I think going back, one of the biggest misconceptions is that this only happens to the female population. I think that, you know, when we look at domestic violence and that domestic violence has to be somebody coming to my office with a black eye, um, we have seen, you know, a large increase in, um, elder abuse in a financial capacity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think sometimes when people think of, oh, domestic violence, it has to be physical. There are a lot of other forms of domestic violence. And, you know, they may not be physical with them, but they're holding their money. They're controlling, you know, who they can and can't see. Um, there's a lot of emotional and psychological abuse that's happening. And I think sometimes, you know, when you see it and you're like, oh, that person's a survivor because you can physically see it. Um, you know, that is another misconception is that it has to be physical, um, you know, in that it's, it does, it it can happen to anybody, you know, and I think that that is one thing that I have seen, you know, and coming from a background in child welfare, a majority of our families, you know, when we were removing kids, um, was for failure to protect. So domestic violence is happening in the home. There's some substance abuse, but ultimately there's failure to protect, um, And I think kind of coming in and seeing the other side, and I worked with parents who were involved in that and seeing just the different dynamic and actually being able to work with survivors and empower them in a way that I couldn't in child welfare is remarkable. Um, In doing it in a way that empowers them, it's, they are the, they know their lives better than anyone else Mm -hmm. and empowering them to make choices and not saying you have to leave. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. it takes six, seven, 10, 14 times for somebody to come in and talk sure. to an advocate, yes. go to a support group until they're ready to leave. And we never have those conversations. It's, you know, there's no judgment. It's how can we keep you safe? Yes. Um, how can we safety plan sure. in the event that you decide at some point to leave? And can you talk, I'm so, I so appreciate you saying that. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those barriers are whenever I said kind of the misconceptions that have been busted for me? I, I've heard people say when you're talking about a domestic violence situation, well, why doesn't she just leave? Yeah. Like you say with kind of putting that just word in there, like it's as simple as leaving. That's not always the case. Can, can you talk about what some of those barriers are? Why a woman might not be leaving, why it might take eight, nine, 10 times, like you said, until she seeks help. What are some of those barriers that prevents that? Um, financial, um, you know, a lot of times there's this financial abuse that's occurring. And so, well, where do I go? How do I start over? And it's scary. I mean, especially if, you know, I've had survivors walk through my office that are in their 60s who have been with their abuser for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And that's 40 years of something, and this is something new. Um, one of the other things, and we get this all the time when people are calling in, um, our shelter actually has a uh, pet kennel on site. So if at 2 a.m. you want to walk out and hug your dog, you can hug your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a question that says, do you take pets? And mm-hmm. I will not leave if I can't take my pet or I can't take my kids. Um, you know, so those are some of the, the biggest barriers that we see a lot of times. Um, 
cultural barriers, you know, because sometimes you have family members that are saying, you just need to deal with it. Like, don't break up your family. And, you know, it's one of those things that it's hard. I mean, that's your family and, you know, they don't want to leave and they're hearing it from them. And so, you know, sometimes, I mean, I had somebody come in two weeks ago donating and then came back in as a walk-in and said, I'm ready to talk to somebody, you know, because they don't even know if they're being abused. I mean, that's a thing is like that. Your normal is your normal. Yeah. And that misconception of it has to be physical and they're coming in saying, well, it's not what I qualify for services because they don't even recognize the signs. You know, because it is, is their normal for 40 years. That has been their normal. And something at some point resonated with them and they said, I think I need to talk to someone. Well, and, you, and you think about the idea, like you said, you know, we think of it purely so often in, in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. But abuse is really anytime there's that power disparity yeah. in, in a relationship. It's all about the power And control. one uses it for mm-hmm. manipulation and control. Yes. And, and that can be done emotionally, financially. You know, I mean, yeah. like, and, and I think part of, you know, the hope is that we can help people, like you said, that we can help people know the way you've existed in a relationship is just not healthy, maybe, mm-hmm. right? If it's if someone is controlling you, no matter what they use, whether it's physical size or violence right. or or threats or or threats or yeah. money or they use your children against you, yes, right? Yeah. Which um, and even in our capacities at church, we we see this stuff all the time as well, mm-hmm. right? Like you were talking about elder abuse, that's one that even in my role, I've come across three or four. Um, relationships in the last six months where you have a, a child yep. in their 40s or 50s controlling a parent mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s and you're just like if I've seen three or four of them how yeah. many exist yeah. in our community right because yeah. um, and it's something you would never think of right like but it exists all around and um, and so I think the prevention side that you were talking about is such a a key component, just helping people understand what does this really look like, mm-hmm. right? Like you said, it's not the lady who always has a sling on her arm necessarily. Right. Though that could certainly be. Yeah. But it's, a lot of times it's it's hidden really well. Mm-hmm. Um, because a big component of that, if you're the victim, is fear, right? Like Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like that, the fear that if this gets out in the open, it could be worse than what it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, and part of what we try to talk a little bit about, I guess, is... Um, especially in the clientele and the popula- population you guys work with, certainly not every story ends as a success story, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, there, and, and I think that's part of the challenge in working in Absolutely. really challenging, um, situations mm-hmm. and environments is that you have to come to terms with the fact that, like you said, you can't force people to anything. Yep. All you can do is create opportunity for them to change Exactly. their own situation and give them the tools to do that. And not everybody makes that choice, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so we could tell all kinds of stories, I'm sure of challenges. <laughs> um, uh, but we also like to hear stories of where someone has taken advantage of those opportunities and they, and their life has really been transformed because that is hope, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hope if, if one person's life can yeah. be changed, everybody's life can be changed. Yeah. I think. Right. Um, and so, is there a story maybe you could share with us of someone that you guys have helped that you that you think about that story and you go, hey, that that's hopeful, right? Yeah. Like that's, and I think we all need those stories because they help, mm-hmm. they keep us get, they keep us doing what we do. Yeah. Right. Oh, um, absolutely. Because yeah. if you don't have those stories of hope, yeah. it gets <laughs> right. It gets, it's very dark. It gets pretty dark real yeah. quickly, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and you end up at the pub a lot, right? Like, yeah. So. Um, so maybe if you've got a story that you could share with us of just maybe a success that you guys have seen and, um, um, yeah, 
Yeah, I'm. I'm could probably sit here for another four hours and tell you all my sure. success stories. I mean, that really is, you know, why we do what we do. At the end of the day, you know, and I can think of one, uh, one survivor in particular. You know, in um, she was pregnant and homeless. Um, she had had her kids removed, and she went through our entire programming, and she maintained permanent housing. She's working. I mean, those are the ones that. You know, she's been able to create really solid boundaries with, you know, the children's father who is her abuser. And, you know, she's been able to maintain those safety plans and when they meet, how they do the handoffs and things like that. And so there is hope. And I think, you know, one of the biggest like hoorays for us that we see is in our housing programs, um, we have two. So we have a transitional housing program and a rapid rehousing program. In our transitional housing program last year, all of our survivors that were in transitional housing maintained permanent housing. Wow. That is my hope. Um, we're not only dealing with survivors, but we are in a community where housing is not super affordable. Sure. A lot of our survivors don't have a lot of skills. They're making ten seventy five an hour. Um, you know, our goal is to subsidize their rent um, up to a certain amount for a certain amount of months and then help them build that self-sufficiency. And mm. with that self-sufficiency comes obtaining permanent housing. For sure. And that is, I think that is where my hope is, is that, yeah. you know, they're getting back on their feet. They're doing everything that they need to do. We're giving them resources for, you know, uh, growing employment if they want to go back to school, you know, things like that so that they can become self-sufficient and they yeah. don't have to rely on anybody else to make that happen. And I think that's such a key point that if all you would do, all you do is remove the violence, mm -hmm. like it, it doesn't solve the issue, it, right? Agreed. Like the, the violence itself is a, a product of, of much deeper issues yes. on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and so unless there's a holistic kind of approach that we give someone viable financial opportunities moving right. forward that they can manage for themselves and, um, you know, otherwise we, you know, it's kind of that we go back to what we know. Yeah. We d right? And, and ha that has happened. We go back to what we know. Yeah. Unless we find that there's something better that's attainable. Yeah. Um, and manageable, I think. And so the fact that you guys walk them through that, man, is such a huge thing. And, and to have every one of them maintained. Yeah. Is we, pretty incredible. That's yeah. Wonderful. It's a, and that's one of the reasons, I mean, our, our transitional housing program is what we call scattered site. Um, and so the goal is that if it's scattered site, they get to identify where they want to live. We talk about, are there any areas you won't live? Where do you feel safe? Where you don't? Um, a majority of our survivors um, need access to public transportation. Sure. So a lot of them are living in areas where there is access to it. Um, so they get to choose. They get to choose where they want to live. And that's why we selected this model. I mean, would it be great someday if someone wants to donate an apartment complex? Sure, please. So if anyone, you, guys yeah. saying, you guys are not saying no. I'm not saying no. But, the, you know, the nice thing about having Scattered Site is that, you know, once we kind of pull out financially, even the survivors that are in housing, they want to maintain supportive services. Sure. Um, they still want to continue with free counseling, even if they have insurance, because they've been able to build a rapport with yeah. a counselor that understands the dynamics of domestic violence. Sure. So, you know, it is... You know, we, we often, you know, me and my staff sometimes joke that there are going to be clients in our program probably for a while, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, if they want the supportive services, we're here. Because, again, it's voluntary. You get to choose. Sure. You know, and if you want it just because you need something that kind of, you know, keeps you motivated or whatever it looks like, um, we want to be there to do that. Well, and you guys really, I, I would imagine for a lot of your clients, you're really the first, like, stable long-term relationship many yes. of them have ever known mm -hmm. that's and exactly so when you true. find that like yeah you just certainly don't want to give that up yeah right yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and that's a healthy thing i think um probably in many ways so mm -hmm. it, it's good that you guys have that long-term 
ability to say, hey, no, listen, even once you're kind of out and yeah. maintaining. We may not be paying your rent. Exactly. But, yeah. Like, yeah, the relationship's not done. Yeah. Right? And the same thing with the support groups, especially that we have here. A majority of our clients that are coming to these support groups are still connected to us in some way. So they might not be receiving supportive services, but they're still connected to Safe Embrace in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is through the support group. And they have that peer support and they've been able to, you know, build those relationships with other survivors. And we've been able to introduce them to that, but they always get to see the staff because the staff are the ones facilitating it. So they still feel connected and, mm-hmm. you know, and they get to, you know, they get to choose. And that's our biggest thing is that it's, we want to empower them to make their own choice because, you know, they are the mastermind in their own life. Well, and I think, you know, the other, the underlying part of that also it would seem might be the idea of like when they come into the program, actually, you know, for, for anyone who is in an abuse situation, isolation is such a huge thing, mm-hmm. right? Like that because abusers have a way of manipulating and yes. isolating, mm-hmm. right? And yep. so one of the ways out of that is to find community, right? Mm-hmm. Like to find connection beyond yes. that single relationship that's been so manipulative and harmful. And so um, how do you guys how do you guys build that into your program? Like that sense of community, that sense of connection. And, and like you said, it seems to be there because they want to maintain it. Yeah. Right. How intentional are you guys with that kind of thing in the program? Maybe. So we, I mean, in addition to the groups we have here, we have other groups outside and that's how we, you know, we want to maintain because we want our survivors to, to build a support network for themselves. Because at that time when they are like, you know what, safe embrace, we're good. Like, you know, I don't want to have to keep telling people that I'm, you know, affiliated with safe embrace and they don't have to, some of them do, but, um, you know, we just try to build a community outside of that. So things that they can do, we offer a lot of like every month we do various events. Last month we took our transitional housing and our safe house clients to the air races. And Mm -hmm. so like we try to build, not just, okay, let's talk about DV one Oh one today. We try to talk about other things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in our safe house, we have, you know, uh, volunteers that come in and teach them how to sew, how to crochet, how to knit, you know, like, so it's really just building other things and things that they can do together as a community in the house or transitional housing to kind of build those supportive relationships. That makes sense. And just, could you say anything? I know you, you mentioned that a little bit ago about the, uh, the apartment building, like kind of joking, but yeah. also yeah. Hey, if anyone happens to be listening and has access to Yeah, if you have an apartment building, building you want to donate, uh, 775-322-3466. We're joking unless you have an apartment building. Right. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah, yeah jokes are yeah. good. But is there anything, even kind of on that scale that if you were just dreaming about, man, what my dream going forward for safe embrace or these are the things I would love to see in our community to come alongside victims of domestic mm-hmm. violence. What would just kind of your dream be in that? What are things you would see that would be so helpful moving forward? Things like an apartment building or just kind of giving those of us who aren't as familiar with the issue a picture of what that could look like in the community. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, while we have like a 24 hour crisis response and hotline, you know, to have something to where if we had RPD bring in a DV survivor and not have to put them up in the hotel for the night to have sort of a drop in center, you know, that would be ideal right now. Staff capacity. I just don't have it, you know? Um, but to be able to have a place and, you know, um, that we can do all the things that we want to do. I mean, our next goal now that our um, shelter or safe house is complete, um, we have a very small admin office, you know, where we do all of our kind of our advocacies, our case management. We have counseling on site. And so it really is to grow sort of that side of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to have survivors that can come in, 
you know, at 2 a.m. if we get the call. And we have a room that's actually set aside at our safe house for that. But we can't necessarily have RPD bringing them to said safe house, you know. So we're really trying to work that out. And I think that's my dream is to be able to have just sort of a triage and a wraparound service for survivors who are fleeing in the middle of the night or sexual assault survivors that can't go back to the homeless shelter, perhaps because their sexual assault happened close to the homeless shelter. You know, we do see an influx in that um, in the wintertime. I mean, you know, and... With limited funding, there's only so much you can do, you know, and we get limited funds every year for um, hotels and emergency evacuation transportation, but that's always a need. It's stuff that our grants don't cover. A lot of that comes from private foundations and private donors um, because it is. It can be really costly. I mean, putting somebody up over Street Vibrations weekend is 500 bucks, you know, and that's $500. It doesn't come from a grant. It comes from, you know, the donors that you know, want to donate and they want their money to go to client services. And, you know, we're a small but mighty program. A majority of all of our money goes to programs. Um, but I think that would be my, my vision and my dream, you know, it's just to have somewhere that we can, you know, kind of this one hub where we can sort of triage and, Mm -hmm. you know, and do you have anyone, is there other programs like safe embrace in other cities that you're kind of patterning yourself after? Are you kind of just going ahead so with, with some of the like rural reduction and some of the models that we use for housing, um, I pulled some uh, resources from what they're doing in Washington because they're extremely innovative up there. And they're, you know, there's been a lot of research done on rural reductions in shelters and the length of time people stay. And, you know, we've increased from about 30 to 49 days. And, you know, sometimes you go, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? You know, and, um, but an increased length of stay means they're safe, you know. Um, and that's really the goal is to get them safe, like, uh, shelter is a process it's not a destination and so you know we want to get them into shelter we want to give them whatever we can to make them successful so when they're ready to access housing in some capacity whether that's with us whether that's with another agency whether that's you know obtaining section eight or whatever that might look like um and i just lost my train of thought so sorry about oh that. that's good yeah but basically you do have people you can look at to see yes. hey these communities are doing this. It's working well. We're going to bring this here. Yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. And so we continue to look at that. I mean, really looking yeah. at that housing first model and kind of the, um, you know, what's happened from state to state when they, you know, facilitate that model and how successful people have been in housing first, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that's one of the big things that we are kind of at the forefront, I would say in Northern Nevada is the voluntary services, housing first and rural reduction. I okay. would say those are our big things that we have taken from, I don't want to say taken, borrowed um, from other agencies and the research that's out there great and can you talk this is going back a little bit but can you go back when you're talking about the prevention side of things you mentioned education to students on red flags Mm -hmm. just kind of red flags to be aware of could you share some of those if if anyone's listening maybe in a relationship that's had that question is this normal is this abusive what is this could you share some red flags maybe for all of us just to be aware of yeah so I think you know one of the red flags that we talk about the most is like access to you know if your significant other um, wants access to your phone or like that controlling piece or that jealousy piece and kind of what that looks like and you know are they getting upset if you're talking to somebody else and what does that look like Um, you know, I think a lot of it though, with all the technology we have, I mean, we see a lot of times that, you know, do they, you know, do they have to know your password? Do they have to know your password to your social media accounts? You know, are they monitoring your social media? Mm. Um, because again, a lot of our youth that social media is their, that's their their thing, you know? Mm. Um, so I would say that, um, you know, and some of the other like red flags we talk about and not, and not necessarily red flags, but, you know, we talk about these scenarios and one of the things we did in coaching boys into men was, you know, if your friend was sending a, an inappropriate picture to somebody else, what would you do? 
And I will tell you, it was extremely alarming when we saw our pre-surveys of how many people would not do anything about it. Um, and then realizing after the facilitation of the curriculum that it is not okay to do that. And so we saw a lot of really good outcomes in the post surveys as opposed to pre. And I think, again, it's because they just don't know that it's not right to do like, oh, look at this picture, you know, and they think they're being cool or they hear somebody call somebody a name in the locker room and, you know, that kind of thing. And so being kind of a good bystander and understanding that it's just not right. And could you also talk about just that idea? Thank you so much for sharing those. That's so good to be aware of. Could you also talk about if we are maybe in life with somebody or friendship with somebody that we suspect is in an abusive situation, or maybe they've confessed to us that they think mm -hmm. they are, what would be a first step on the other side of that to walk alongside them? Is that contacting a shelter like you all? Is it, what, what does that look like if, if we're in relationship with somebody who is in an abusive relationship? So we always have to talk to the survivor. Um, and you know, as somebody who has had, you know, known people who have been in similar um, situations, it's about being supportive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's again like, well, why don't you just leave? That's not gonna get them to leave. You know, it's about what can I do to support you? How can I keep you safe? And here are some resources if you decide, you know, and it's, you can access services. I mean, you don't have to come in. You can, you know, if you have access to a computer, um, you can fill out a web form. Um, you know, we tried not to have people contact us on Facebook just because it's not a secure platform. Sure. Um, you mentioned you have a support line or yes, we have okay. a 24 hour crisis hotline. Okay. Um, we also are working on getting a text line because sometimes again, it's easier to send quick texts if you're being monitored, whatever mm -hmm. that might look like. Um, so there's, we're trying to, um, you know, kind of grow the avenues in which we can be contacted. Um, because again, some people might have access to a computer at certain times, but they don't have access to a phone. And so if they feel like they just want to kind of feel us out, you know, we always ask the question when they call, um, do you have a number that's safe to contact you at? Do you have an email that's safe? And if they say no, we never call. Um, and that's one of our biggest things. And even if we are calling a survivor, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, say we're calling somebody to come in on the wait list and they're living with their abuser you know, the information that we're leaving on the message is very, very, just very vague, mm -hmm. you know, because again, it's, we're trying to protect them. And, you know, usually that, that point in time when they're getting ready to flee is one of the most dangerous points in their, okay. in their life. So and just to give people a scope maybe of <clears throat> the issue in like Northern Nevada, how many clients do you guys, have, do you guys have interaction with kind of on a monthly basis or daily basis? How many how many, uh, oh, too many, yeah, yeah, <laughs> too sure. many. Um, you know, we run about, I would say 200 to 250 contacts a month with about, I would say probably 40% of those being unique contacts. So wow. new individuals seeking okay. services. I mean, you know, in unfortunately Nevada's ranked fourth in the nation, uh, okay. for homicides of wives and girlfriends. So, oh, not something to be super proud of, sure. um, but we see it a lot, you know, that we have new contacts coming pretty frequently. And I yeah. think it's, you know, as the, um, as people start to know services, you know, yeah. they start to say, okay, like I know somebody who's been through that program, so I'm going to call safe embrace, or they're being referred to us from the national hotline. Cause that can happen too, is you have somebody that, you know, is in South Dakota and they have some supports here in Reno, but what does that look like getting them or sure. fleeing them, you know? Um, so that's another, yeah. And I think we know, you know, I, I think the studies national have shown the report rates are really low, yeah. right? Like the percentages of report are really, really low. Yes. So if we have 250 yeah. 
Well, and I think, yeah, and I think a lot of times, you know, they're, the reports are low because people don't know that that's, that that's happening to them. Because again, they think it has to be physical and well, he's not pushing me or he's not punching me. He's not breaking any bones, but he's taking my money. He's, you know, there's that course, course of control piece where he's isolating me from everybody, you know? And so that it's not like, oh, you know, this could be happening to me. Or am I going to be in a more dangerous situation if I do reach out and he finds out? Yes. Am I just, yeah. Is there going to be retaliation? Yeah. 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 Like if he gets, you know, gets a 72 hour hold and when he gets out, what's going to happen to me? Exactly. Because he's going to be angry, you know? Would you, is there anything else, just because as we close out here, is there anything else that if you just had the community's ear, like if you were able to just kind of speak to Reno Sparks, that you would want people to know about this issue? And then also how we can join you in the hope and the work that you're doing for these men and women. Um, Anything that you'd want to say into that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are always looking for volunteers. That's, you know, a huge you know, like I said, we are a very small but mighty agency. Um, we wear a lot of different hats. Do you have? So we have fifteen. You have fifteen. Okay. Um, you know, we there's me, um, and I'm not rehiring for a program director, so I kind of take on both of those. You know, and so I have a couple of supervisors. Um, we don't have a development director, so there. You know, when we really look at funds, all of the funds that are coming in are for program staff, and so we don't have a lot of overhead, and it's really all going to programs. But you know, there are things that grants don't pay for, and. You know, we do two really large fundraisers a year. One is actually coming up on 11-23. Um, it's our annual Trees and Lights Gala. It's actually a really cool event. It's black tie. Um, we have donors donate fully decorated trees. People, you know, bid on them, and they get to take home a fully decorated tree, which mm-hmm. is, you know, and there's a great deal. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. You don't have to spend your time decorating it. And then um, it usually in the early spring, we have an event called Top Hats Presents, and that is sort of a newer event that we're sort of spearheading. It was this first year that we sort of changed it, but um, another fun dress-up event. It's a Top Hat event. There will be a different theme every year, and usually those funds that are raised at those events, you know, go directly to programs and supporting our programs, and, you know, volunteers, um, interns, we take on quite a few interns every year from local colleges, whether they're bachelor's level or master's level, because... You know, it's great experience. You know, I mean, I sometimes my, you know, I, it never fails. You know, the first day an intern starts and it's, we've got a client in our office that's, it can be a lot sometimes. You're hearing a lot of stuff that you're, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, they, they leave with, you know, having an understanding of what it takes to work with survivors if that's sort of their passion. So, you know. They figure out pretty quickly if that's for them or not. They do. Yeah. Because you can, you can burn out in this field pretty, I mean, pretty quickly. So, and when you said. Jessica, when you mentioned about you always have a need for volunteers, mm-hmm. I know you said something earlier about some of your volunteers teach teach those in your shelters to knit or crochet. Yeah. So I'm guessing the volunteer scope is, is pretty broad. It's huge. Um, can you talk about, let's say I called in today and said, hey, I'd like to be a volunteer for Safe Embrace. Yeah. What are some of the avenues, what, what are some of the avenues that could look like? So we do, it's kind of, you know, depending on how you want to volunteer and what capacity. So if you want to volunteer and you want to come in and you want to, you know, work with the clients or with the kids, you want to volunteer in the kids club, um, you go online under our volunteer section, fill out a web form. Someone would contact you and talk about like what the volunteer training looks like, what the background process looks like. Um, we also have a lot of large, um, you know, whether they're fraternities or sororities doing like philanthropic activities. So large groups, um, boys and girls clubs sometimes will do them for us too, where they just come out and they help us organize our storage space or they pull weeds. It's not super fun, but some of those really large scales because there's 30 of them mm-hmm. and 30 of them can get stuff done pretty quickly. So um, organizing our connects or sorting donations. I mean, yeah. it really just depends on what capacity they want to 
they want to volunteer in. And what is the kids club? So our kids club, so on at our safe house, we actually have an area that is, it's got toys, it's got computers. Um, I have a part-time kids club program assistant. So pretty much every day after school, um, they can go in, they can get homework help. We do a lot of like age appropriate curriculum mm-hmm. with them to talk about, again, those red flags, those signs, hands are not hitting, that kind of thing. And it also gives their parents an opportunity to attend groups without their kids um, because it's not appropriate for the kids to be in there while mom is rehashing potentially some of her situation. Um, and if they're not, if there isn't a group, it gives mom just a break, you mm-hmm. know, because a lot of times, sometimes you're parenting the child by yourself for the first time. And so, you know, our goal eventually, that's another one of my wish lists, is to have a full-time kids club program assistant to be able to, you know, have access to her all day and, you know, all day during you know, fall breaks or spring breaks and things like that, because the kids love it and the kids love her. We have a phenomenal person running our program. And every day, if I go over there, you know, is she here today? And I'm like, she's going to until later, but you know, <laughs> so it is, it's just a, a place for them to be kids, Wonderful. you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. And what was the website address for you uh, www.safeembrace.org. Okay. So if somebody wants to volunteer, they can go. There's a volunteer form on the website. Yep, there's a um, volunteer form. Yep. Cool. Mm-hmm. Could you also share the hotline number since we brought that up? Yeah, so our 24-hour hotline is 775-322-3466. Excellent, thank you. Cool. Well, uh, Jessica, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we want to encourage you guys. One of the things we talk about every week is there's a place for you to make to bring hope to Northern Nevada. And so whether it's with Safe Embrace or another organization, the way this gets better is all of us involved in it. And so um, we want to encourage you, find a place, man, bring some hope uh, to the people of Northern